Hey, Woodlawn family, we hope you're doing great, and we are looking forward to worshiping with you. In fact, we have some good news. We are ready to add another in-person worship opportunity. Many of you have responded to the survey we sent out last week, and it was extremely helpful in our planning for the rest of our 2020 schedule. Based on those results, we have decided to reopen our contemporary service for in-person worship on October 4th at 9.40 a.m. We are also exploring options for our traditional service, so stay tuned for those details in the near future. So to recap, we have two in-person worship opportunities available. Worship at the Water at our Sharkey's campus at 8.30 a.m. and our contemporary service at the Alf Coleman campus at 9.40 a.m. And as always, all three service types are available each week on our online campus. Visit woodlawnpcb.info for all the details. We love you and we can't wait to take this next step into our new normal. And please know, if you're not comfortable returning, please continue worshiping with us online. Your safety is our highest priority, and we are working diligently to create worship experiences that are just as engaging and meaningful online as they are in person. However you decide to join us, we can't wait to worship together. Welcome to Woodlawn. We're so glad that you've joined us today. Now, we've been living with COVID for about six months now. Did you know it was that long? But really, it seems like a lot longer, doesn't it? Well, that's why we've been preaching on the first century church, because after all they went through in their lives, they didn't give up. Just knowing that encourages me, and I hope it does you too. Now, the church didn't begin as a building, as we know. The church began as a movement about 2,000 years ago. The thing that launched, launched the church was an event, and that event was the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples said to the people in the streets of Jerusalem, Jesus, who was crucified, you know, he rose from the dead. And it didn't happen 20 years ago or 50 years ago. It happened about two months ago, and we can tell you about it. 
And suddenly the church was a movement and the church has always been a movement and there's always been a group of people who understood that and carried it on. There's always been a remnant of people who understood the message of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who came for the whole world. In all of religion, there's a question. What do we do when we've broken the rules? In other words, we can't be perfect. We're human beings. We try to live a godly life, but we make mistakes, don't we? We all sin and fall short of God's glorious ideal. And so we have to repent of our sins and, and tell God and confess them, and then we are able to be forgiven of their sins, our sin. Well, Jesus came to say, I'm the solution to the dilemma of you breaking the rules. I've come to answer that question, and I've come so that I might forgive your sins. And the Jewish people flooded out into the streets of Jerusalem and said, He has risen from the dead. He has validated His message, and now you and I can have peace with God. Now, on the opening day of the church, we said about 3,000 followers became Christians and were baptized. And a couple of weeks later, 2,000 more got saved. In fact, by this time this story picks up today in Acts 5 that we're going to be looking at, over 5,000 people, men, had embraced the message of Jesus Christ. That doesn't count the rest of the women or children, and that's about 10% of the population in Jerusalem. Because he was crucified, because he was dead and buried, because he rose from the dead, nobody even tried to produce a body because there were so many eyewitnesses to what had happened. They saw him put in the tomb, but they also saw him resurrected afterward. The problem was that the first century in the city of Jerusalem, there was a, a balance, a tenuous balance between the government of Rome and then also the Jewish authorities whom Rome let run the temple, the Jewish temple. But suddenly, that peace had been disrupted by all this talk about Jesus and this new movement. So what happened next was persecution. Peter and John were arrested and spent the night in jail. They were confronted by the Jewish authorities who said, quit talking about Jesus and quit talking about the resurrection. But they wouldn't even say the name Jesus. They just said, quit talking about that name. And after spending the night in jail, then Peter and John went and found the other 120-so followers that they had, and they prayed together, and they prayed the first recorded prayer of the local church, and here's what they prayed. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That's amazing to me. They were saying, now you've heard what the authorities have said. They've threatened us. They've killed Jesus. They put us in jail. We didn't know if we would live or die. And here's what we're going to pray. We're not praying for protection. We're not praying for you to deliver us. We're praying that you will give us great boldness to go out and share the message of the gospel. Boldness is what got them thrown in jail, but they're even more resolute now to go back and share with boldness. You remember last week, they said, stretch out your hand, heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
And then they went out into the streets and they began to preach, knowing they were going to be in trouble. This was a time when the local church was completely open-handed. The last thing they worried about was themselves. They were so concerned about the people around them that they wanted to share that message. And they were saturated by love. And when people outside the church looked at the people inside the church, what they did was they said, we want to be like them because of the way they love each other. They treated each other and outsiders, and they also, the way they responded to persecution. The people noticed that. And the Bible tells us in Luke that, that the Christian people had favor. They had favor with their community. They had favor with their culture because there was something unusually wonderful about them. In today's world, in today's culture, we don't see a lot of people having favor in the Christian faith, do we? We've lost that. Part of the reason we've lost that is because we're so blessed, and you should never feel guilty about being blessed, but you should always feel responsible about it. Luke was a doctor, and he interviewed eyewitnesses who had an account of what happened in the early church. After Peter and John got arrested and spent the night in jail, they gathered with about 120 followers of Jesus. They prayed for boldness and they went back out into the streets preaching the message of Jesus. They kept preaching that message after the resurrection. More and more people embraced that message and word got out and hundreds of people from the surrounding communities began to come in and flock to Jerusalem. And what did they do? They came in and they brought their sick and their lame and their blind into the city because they heard that there were some people there who were healing them. They were praying for them and healing them. And it was the apostles because Jesus had given them that power to be able to heal. So now the city of Jerusalem is already full of glory because now there's a group of people there because of the Jewish festival that's going on. So the religious leaders, in an attempt to manage this delicate balance of power, they say, Rome, let us do this. But if we do too much, Rome is going to squash us. Now, that's what the religious leaders were thinking. And this group gets all the attention. Now these new Christians, they're out there and people are watching them. And the experts of the law, the Jewish authorities, nobody's showing up for their worship services now. And suddenly they're not, quote, the guys anymore. So these religious leaders become jealous of these new Christians who are sharing the faith so dramatically. And they're sharing the love of Christians around them. So now they arrest the apostles and they're thinking, well, we got rid of the ringleader. If we can squash this leadership team of Christians, we can get rid of this. But during the night after they put them in jail, somebody opened the door and the apostles were able to walk out. And the next morning when the Jewish authorities go there, they're not there. And when they hear that the apostles are back in the temple and they're preaching in the name of Jesus and they're preaching about the resurrection, now they're absolutely furious. So they send the temple guard to arrest them. But there's so many people around them, the temple of guard, they, they say, we're afraid to arrest them because the crowd will stone us. So one of them slips up to Peter and says, hey, 
we're supposed to arrest you, but if we arrest you, these people, they're going to stone us. So could you kind of arrest yourself and come along with us so that we can take you back to the Sanhedrin? So Peter and the disciples accompanied the, the guard back to the temple and to the Sanhedrin. And they placed themselves under arrest in order to give an account of what they're doing. And this is where the story picks up today in Acts, the fifth chapter. If you want to just read along in the book of Acts, this is what I'm going to be talking about. The scripture starting with Acts 5, 27 and 28 says, The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. They won't even say the name of Jesus. Isn't that interesting that even in our culture today, the name of Jesus 2,000 years ago can be so disruptive. People don't want to hear that because they're opposed to Jesus and they don't like to hear his name because he's got tremendous power. In Acts 5.28, they said, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and have determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, this is two months after the resurrection. And the Sanhedrin is saying, The way you tell the story, it makes it look like we're guilty for his death. And Peter's thinking, well, that's because you are. <laughs> I was there. I saw what happened. The reason it sounds like you're guilty is because you had him arrested and tried and crucified. You are guilty. And the scripture in 5, 29 through 31 says, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. And then it goes on and says this, God exalted him to his own right hand as a prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And that's why Christianity is the culmination of all religion because there's only one Messiah and that's Jesus. The scripture goes on and says, we are witnesses to these things. This is not something somebody told us. This is not something somebody taught us. This is something we saw with our own eyes. In other words, we know the events of what we're talking about happen right here in this city. And then they go on in Scripture and say, We are witnesses of these things, and also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So the apostles were going to preach every time they got the chance. They were going to talk about Jesus. They were going to talk about the resurrection. So they go on in Scripture and say, now when the authorities heard this, when they heard this, they were furious and they wanted to put them to death. They'd already gotten the ringleader, Jesus. So now they're thinking, if we can get rid of this leadership group, then we can put it to an end. And then something really fascinated happened. Fascinated, fascinating happened. In Scripture it says this, but in the Pharisee named Gamaliel addressed the Sanhedrin. He stood up and he made a speech. And this is what he said. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. And he was killed. And all of his followers dispersed after he died. 
So all the guys in the room said, well, yeah, we remember when that happened. And then he said in Scripture after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and he led a big band of people in revolt. But when he too was killed, his followers scattered. And then Gamaliel said this, Therefore, in the present case, I advise you to leave these men alone and let them go. For if their purpose and activity is of human origin, it will fail. If it's just another movement that they're just doing on their own, we don't have to worry about it. It won't succeed. Because, see, in the first century, the Romans weren't really against Christianity. They were just against any kind of authority or power that disrupted their authority. And the scripture says it goes on. It says, but if this work is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting with God. Gamaliel knew what he was talking about, didn't he? And he was saying, if there's going to be a breakthrough movement, it's going to take an act of God. Do you know what there are more of in Rome than anywhere else in the world? Crosses. There are more crosses in Rome than anywhere. But the crosses don't represent all the crucifixions. They represent a single crucifixion because of the resurrection. Rome is considered by many people the capital of Christianity. And Gamaliel was exactly right. The only thing they could create momentum bigger than Rome would be an act of God. Little did he know that in the very city where he was saying that very thing, God was going to do something new and they would, it would ultimately be called the church. Well, they liked his reasoning. And then it says this, His speech persuaded them and they called the apostles and then they had them flogged. Now, flogging was a terrible thing. They would take pieces of wood and steel and glass, and they would put them on a cat of nine tails, a kind of a whip, and it had ends on the strip. And a person was beaten until portions of their body were literally ripped away. In fact, their back and their chest and stomach, it would just peel the skin off of them. So how would you respond to something like that? You know, you're listening to your best friend screaming, and you know that you're next to receive that pain, all because of something you said that you believe, and more importantly, something you said you saw. You see, if it were us, the message of Christianity would have never moved beyond the first century. But the Scripture says, now listen to their response. Here's what they said. Then they ordered them not to speak the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And the apostles, listen to what they did after they were flogged. They left the Sanhedrin because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Can you imagine? They're thanking God that they were worthy. We did this for you, Lord. We're so grateful. In the first century, forefathers said, to have suffered and been disfigured because of the name of Jesus is the thing that we're most proud of. I said, Jesus gave his life for us. We could give our skin for him. I'm not ashamed. It's my most prized possession, they said, and that's just the way they thought. What happened to us? 
We're so extraordinarily blessed today. Instead of being grateful and being good stewards of the blessing, we've allowed it to strip us of our boldness. The scripture says that day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And after this, after they had been flogged, how do they respond? What happened to us? Where did that go? What happened to our boldness? I would like to suggest some steps to boldness for you and me in our world today because we are the church. Here are some suggestions. First, say something when it would be easier to say nothing. See, being bold in our world today is just speaking up. And boy, people speak up all the time on social media, don't they? And if you tell people you're a Christian, you're going to be attacked for it. But that's what bold is in our culture. And you say, well, I don't want to say anything because they may not like me. Maybe you meet somebody who just moved to Panama City Beach, and you say, have you found a good church yet? That would be speaking up. That's a simple way to be bold. And then second, take advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. You start praying for boldness, and you're going to run into opportunities and divine appointments to fill it, fulfill it. Boldness for us is to simply take advantage of the opportunities when they present themselves. Aren't you grateful that somebody was bold with you? Aren't you grateful that somebody stood up and told you about Jesus and explained what it meant to be a Christian? But if you put yourself in that I'm not a Christian category, you're thinking this is the very thing I hate about Christians. Why don't they just keep to themselves? Why are they always trying to change us? And the greatest news for you is most of them do. You're safe. You'll work around Christians, and you don't even know they're Christians because they're secret Christians. The good news for you is that most of us will never let on that we are followers of Jesus because if you're a good American today, you're scared to death it's going to cost you something. Scripture says, but there are some of us who believe in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, he gave something. He didn't ask for something. His son he gave that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. But if you've been a nuisance to people who are not Christians, and when you think church, that makes them think negative, that's our fault. Because here's the deal. If we have kept the spirit of the first century church alive, do you know what would be the case? Even if people never became a Christian, they would like us and they would want to be around us and they'd be in awe of us. They would look at us and they would see the love that we have for each other and say, you know, I'm not sure about Jesus, but I want some of that love that they share with each other. I like the way they treat each other and people outside the church. And, you know, if you looked at the first century Christians, you know, and we were to be like them, you'd want to hire us. You would want to work for us. You'd want to marry us. You would be in such awe of our love and appreciation that you would love Christians even if you never believed in Jesus. 
And if that's not been your experience, if you're outside of the church and outside of Christianity, that's our fault, not yours. So forgive us for not being the good representatives of the Savior that we need to be, who came to give and not to take or require. We hope that one day you'll come to the realization that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in the meantime, the rest of us are going to pray and ask God, help us learn how to be bold. We're going to say something when it would be easier to say nothing. And we're going to take advantage of opportunities when they surface. That's how the church escaped the first century. They were bold, and they stood up for God. In the words of Gamaliel, it was an act of God in the first century that, that birthed the church, and it's continued right on through our lifetime. And God has been active ever since. And we are a part of it because we are a part of the big church, the church of God. Lord, I just pray that you would give us boldness to be the people you've called us to be, to do the things you've called us to do. I pray in Jesus' name.